0: Thank you, Brian, and thank you, uh, Billy and Rathbun family. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Speaking of exciting, we're going to be in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, if you're visiting with us and didn't bring a Bible, we, we put black uh, hardback Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. Be sure you snag one of those. And, uh, and we'll get started in just a minute in Revelation chapter 8. So yeah, it's exciting to hear what God's doing in our church and in the lives of the Rathbun family. Um, As you can try to imagine, um, uh, uprooting everything here with little kiddos and moving uh, to the Philippines simply because Jesus said go. Um, They're going to need a lot of encouragement and support. And on a practical level, I want you to to be looking for an email coming from us, churchwide email, um, with some bullet points outlining the training that will be involved. There's going to be a lot of expertise that you have that we may need from auto mechanics to agriculture to food preservation, uh, sustainable living, all those sorts of things. We've got to do our best to equip them and get them ready to go. So be looking for that uh, so that you can know what part you might have have even on a practical level. So uh, Revelation 8 is where we are this morning. And we're going to make it all the way to Revelation 11. So we got a lot of work to do, uh, but it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. So if you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a while, just so you know, we're, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we've made it uh, to chapter 8, which is where we get to uh, the seven trumpets. And I'll give you some reference uh, so that you can kind of know where we are in just a moment on that. So um, so let me, uh, let me just start with the timeline uh, that we've been working off of. That's the big question about Revelation. So if you open your Bible to the very first verse in the very first chapter you're going to start with the beginning chapter one and two of Genesis and shortly after that chapter three something dramatic happens that mars all of human history and it is what we call the fall this is where Adam and Eve rebel against God sin enters the world and death follows and so chapter three really really fractures a lot of things it fractures the image of God in man we were created to bear the image of God. And through our sin, that, has, that, that image has been fractured and shattered. In addition to that, the relationship between God and man has been fractured, severed, separated. And we see that also play out horizontally in the relationships between man and woman. Adam and Eve are now hiding from each other. Chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, you have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and so, so much has been fractured and marred because of the fall, and a shadow has been cast, if you will, across human, the human timeline of human history, and what we're looking for is the reconciliation of that. So when you work through your Bible from Genesis, from left to right, beginning Moving forward, throughout the whole Old Testament, what you're going to get are uh, these beautiful prophecies of a rescuer. And every man and every woman that has ever been born is born into this world, this fallen world of sin. Sometimes it shows up in big ways like it did in Paris this weekend. Sometimes it shows up in subtle ways in our daily lives. But sin has its hold on us, right? And so every man and woman born has been looking for and longing for what? A rescuer. We need to be rescued. The Apostle Paul says at the end of uh, Romans 7, who can rescue us from from this life, this body of sin? And so all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to a rescue. And this is where Jesus comes in, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God sends his son, the Messiah, who's been prophesied to the earth to rescue us. And then... The very next book in your Bible, the book of Acts, opens up the church age. And so from here, going forward, what we're looking forward to on the far end of the timeline is the second coming of Christ, his return, and ultimately God restoring all things and making them new with the recreation of the heaven and the earth and the new Jerusalem. And so Revelation if you will, is a description of something that takes place between here and here, right, to let us know, right, that this is coming, to remind God's people he hasn't forgotten us, he is on the way. Now, let me just give you some some help on the seven seals, trumpets, bowls. So, in the book of Revelation, um, the first chapter, we get this this, this, um, amazing description of Jesus. It doesn't look like he looked here right, as a baby in a manger, meek and mild, enduring abuse and not retaliating, meek like a lamb. We get this victorious, priestly, kingly image of Jesus in chapter one of Revelation. So much so that the apostle John, when he sees him, even though he hung out with Jesus a lot in the gospels, he's just overwhelmed and falls down like dead. He's overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the Lord Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, John, it's me, <laughs> it's me. This is what I really look like, don't be scared. And he begins to unfold this revelation. Now, the book of Revelation right after that, chapters two and three, uh, are seven letters to seven churches. So two primary perspectives on that. These are either seven letters written reali- like written in real time, realistically to seven churches in Asia for that day and time. And so when we read it, we're just overhearing that conversation or they were written also for our benefit and potentially reflect seven different eras of the church. It's two different perspectives. Now, here's here's the point. It doesn't matter which perspective you have. They all end in the same place, which leads us to then the opening of the scroll, which is sealed, sealed with seven seals. Then we have seven trumpets and seven bowls. Okay, you tracking? So let me just give you some more. Some more uh, parameters here on the seven trumpets that we're about to see. So, last week we looked at the seven seals. One perspective on these, sev- these signs of seven, okay, seven tr- seals, trumpets, and bowls, are that they, they unfold in linear fashion. So, last week we had seven seals, then after that you have seven trumpets, then after that you have seven bowls. That's one perspective. Another perspective is what's called the telescopic view. And see if you can follow me on this. So, last week we saw the unfolding of Seal number one, seal number two, three, four, five, six, seven. The telescopic view says that within the seventh seal, you then get seven trumpets. And then within the seventh trumpet, you get seven bowls. Track with me for just a minute. There's one more perspective, and that's the secular view. And here's the secular view, that you have the unfolding of seven seals. And when you get to the seven trumpets, it's just a reiteration again of the same seven moments or or events or signs unfolding and then when you get to seven bowls it's seven more again now why are there so many views i'll give you some help the primary reason there are seven views is that they all end with the second coming of christ as we'll see today ushering in his kingdom they all end in the same place so it's either three expressions of the same thing right or you have this telescopic view meaning that where the seventh seal ends so does the seventh trumpet and so does the seventh bowl but there's one more element that makes it hard. You have what we call the storm theophany. Write that down. That's just a cool expression, storm theophany. This is God's glory and majesty revealed in such a way that if you're in, that, in the presence of it, it feels like you're in the midst of a thunderstorm. We saw this in Revelation 4 and 5, this beautiful description of the throne room of God. and it was, His glory was so thick you could see it, You could hear it. It sounded like thunder. You could feel it. And there were were these, these flashes of light that could only be compared to flashes of lightning. So here's what happens. You have this storm theophany, this revealed majesty of God in his throne room, and then you get the opening of the seven seals. Then we get the storm theophany again, as we'll see today, and then you get the sounding of the seven trumpets. Then you get this storm theophany again, and it rolls into the seven bowls. So either, right, so either it's linear, kind of telescopic, moving out, or it's secular, but here's the beautiful thing about it. It doesn't matter which perspective you take. Why? Because they all end at the same place. And this is the point of it all. And so Revelation can be a really hard book to read. Many of you have probably even tried it and, and just got stuck and bogged down in the imagery and didn't know where to go. Let me just give you some help. Starting in Revelation 4 all the way to verse are all the way to chapter 20, is this description of these signs or harbingers, these, these moments in time that will indicate that something is about to happen. So now when we say harbinger, what we're not talking about is Jonathan Kahn's work called the, 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 um, is it called the Harbingers, where he talks about the nine harbingers from Isaiah 9, connects them to 9-11 in the United States, uh, indicating that the United States is on its way out uh, or on its way towards destruction. So, it was a great, fantastic, intriguing, interesting work. But ultimately, we're not interested in Jonathan Kahn's book. We're interested in God's book and the idea that these harbingers, these signs, these seals, these trumpets, these bowls are telling us something is coming. Now, that being said, let's get started in Revelation chapter 8. You excited? Yes. Yeah, I am too. All right. So, let's get started. So, we're going to start in verse 2 of chapter 8 because verse 1 talks about what? The opening of the seventh seal. So we already feel some overlap here. So the seventh seal has been opened. Verse two, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, um, so already in chapter one, we were told that Jesus had the seven stars in his hand representing the seven angels of the churches. Then within, the seven, within the, the seven letters, the seven churches, we see seven angels. Each one is given a church to go as a messenger, quite possibly the same seven angels, but something's different. They've been given what? Trumpets. So you've got seven angels here in this throne room of God, and they're all standing. I picture them in a line here with their trumpets in hand, ready to go, right? I mean, they're just like a, an offensive line on the line, just waiting for the orders to go, and they're prepared. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood. So we got an eighth angel now coming and he stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So you got this vision in your mind, seven angels, seven trumpets ready to go. You've got an eighth angel carrying a censer full of incense. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's talk for just a minute about the significance of the trumpets. So if you, if you read your Old Testament and look for the use of trumpets in the Old Testament, you're going to see these, um, these really big events in Human history, really big events in your Bible are signified by the blowing of trumpets. I'll give you a few of them. Okay, I'm gonna roll through a few kind of quick and then we'll slow down. So, um, trumpets were used to indicate the beginning of a time of war. This is how you indicated, right? Charge, we're on the way. Um, they were also used in the dedication of the temple. So, when it was time for the grand opening of the temple, trumpets were used to indicate, to signify the temple is now open the enthronement of a new king. They would announce with the blowing of the trumpets, we have a new king. The worship of Yahweh is oftentimes depicted with the blowing of trumpets. And we say Yahweh, we sang that earlier. This is literally the proper name of God. So we call him by a bunch of names, don't we? He's our rescuer, he's our savior, he's our Lord, he's our God. But the proper name of God, which we fumble through and do our best to pronounce as Yahweh, simply because for so many years, the Hebrew people would not say his name out loud, right, out of fear and reverence. We don't even know if that's the right way to pronounce it. We're just singing it, taking our best shot at it. And and it literally means I I am or I be. That's God's proper name. And so you see in your Old Testament, when you're reading about God and you see the, the word Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. And oftentimes we see that the worship of Yahweh is preceded by trumpets blowing. We also see that trumpets are used to call nations to a time of repentance in the midst of disaster. Um, We see that trumpets are used in the bringing up of the ark. Remember Jericho? The walls of Jericho fell after what? The seven priests blew seven trumpets and the walls came crumbling down. But some more significant moments in the Old Testament that I think are more closely related to what we're about to see here are these. The appearance of Yahweh, God, before Israel at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. Moses goes up on the mountain, the people of Israel down at the foot of the mountain, and we get this description of what it looks and feels like. Here's verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Exodus 19, 19. Moses is in the presence of God at the top of the mountain. The trumpets are getting louder and louder. Moses speaks to God, and the voice of God coming back sounds like thunder. How about the announcement of the day of Yahweh? So in the Old Testament, all the way back here, we get these beautiful prophecies of the day of the Lord that's coming, right? We get this beautiful uh, prophetic description of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament, I'll give you a few examples, is often announced with trumpets. Uh, From from Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter two, verse one. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near. From the prophet Zechariah, chapter nine, 14. Again, from the Old Testament. Then the Lord will appear Over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So, we get these descriptions from the Old Testament looking forward to what we understand to be the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, indicated by these trumpets blowing, and even God being represented in his glory in this storm theophany. His voice sounds like thunder. In the New Testament, Jesus is sitting down with the disciples in Matthew 24, and they start this conversation really with a question. This is Matthew 24, 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Then later on in that same chapter, as Jesus is answering that question in 31 of Matthew 24, he says... And he, being God, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is saying what? There'll be trumpets sounding. There'll be trumpets. I love this next one. I'll, give you, I'll just give you one more. Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians 15. And, and keep in mind, the apostle Paul is writing this. So he wasn't there in Matthew 24 when Jesus was talking privately with his, with his disciples. And, And John is the one writing Revelation. So somewhere in between the Apostle Paul is speaking, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He's speaking of Revelation 20 there, at the sounding of what? The last trumpet. And so all throughout the Bible, we get these beautiful indications that when God does something big on earth, it will be preceded by a trumpet. And when God, the day of the Lord is at hand, we'll know it because there'll be a trumpet sounding. Now, there's two other things that we see or three other things we see here already. We see the throne room and we see the altar. We saw this in chapter four and five. In this beautiful imagery of of, of God's presence and his glory, there was a throne representing what? His authority, his justice, and his judgment, right? But there's also an altar representing what? The sacrifice of ultimately Jesus for our salvation. So in that imagery, you get the, the, the mingling of both God's justice and his mercy. And that can be a big struggle, can't it? We begin to see God as a God of justice who brings about wrath and punishment. Then we ask the question, well, I thought he was good and loving and merciful. And how can those two be describing the same God? Well, that's actually what we're going to get to today. The incense. So incense was used in in worship in the Old Testament. Um, the, The priest would use a censer, which was a bowl, a metal bowl, And they would burn incense in it, and the top had holes in it. And so as you kind of swung it around, it would fill the temple both with smoke, but also with an aroma. The aroma was this beautiful indication of the worship of God. And it was pleasing to the nostrils, representing that the worship of the people was pleasing to God. And now here in Revelation, that, that incense is being used, if you will, to indicate the prayers of the saints in the presence of God. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at Revelation 5 and 6 for just a moment to set us up to understand what's about to take place with, these, with the blowing of the first trumpet. So, Revelation 5, 8. You can turn there. We can put this on the screen. Talking about when Jesus took the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in this imagery, the prayer of the saints, by the way, that's you. Did you know that? When the Bible talks about the saints, that's those who are in Christ, that's you. So our prayers are represented by this incense that, that our prayers are literally so thick they're beginning to feel the air in the presence of God. Now think about that. Because that, I think so often we pray things and then just forget it, don't we? I mean, how many hundreds, if not thousands of prayers have you in your heart or with your lips uttered to God and then forgot about? Right? And so when this happens, we tend to feel like what? God forgets about them too. And so what we're seeing here is that God hasn't missed one genuine prayer. He hasn't forgotten one thing that you've expressed to him. All of our prayers are, are collected like this bowl of incense filling the presence of of the throne room of God with the prayers of the saints. Then in Revelation 6, the very next chapter, we hear the martyrs crying out and praying. Verse 10, this is at the opening of the fifth seal. We saw this last week. They, being the martyrs, those who've died for the sake of Christ, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So the martyrs cry out and God responds with what? Be patient just a little bit longer. And so here we have the martyrs crying out, God, avenge us. Avenge those of your people here on earth who are still being mistreated and and, and cast out and persecuted. Some of them even killed for their faith. How long, oh God, until you avenge the blood? And God says what? It's almost time. Be patient. We see indications of this all over the world. You know, what we saw in Paris, this this grotesque expression of brutality directed towards, primarily, towards the Christian faith. What we're seeing is a small glimpse of this. Demonic forces working through disasters or through people to bring about destruction to God's people. Now, the Paris thing was incredibly tragic, right? People right now still fighting for their life as a result. But I think as a church, we are somewhat naive and not realizing that that is actually taking place in much higher numbers every day right now. Across areas of Africa, across the Middle East, Christians being persecuted for their faith. And the martyrs are crying out, God, how long before you avenge, before you bring your enemies to an end? And God says to the martyrs, a little bit longer. Now, this is what's beautiful. So in verses 2 through 4, the prayers of the saints are filling the presence of God. And in verse 5, he now begins to respond. As the trumpets blow, we begin to see this crescendo of God's responding and avenging the blood of the martyrs. Responding to the prayers of his people with the blowing of the trumpets. In verse 5, Then the angel, who has this this censer with incense, so he goes back to the altar. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so this eighth angel has got a censer full of incense representing our prayers. And then what does he do? He goes back to the altar and loads it with burning coal, right? And now the imagery, he's hurling this coal down on the earth. And we're going to see this unfold in the seven trumpets. So if you get this imagery in your, in your mind, so you're like from Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is in the presence of God, the throne room of God, and he realizes that he, he says, I am ruined, I am undone, I am unworthy to be in the presence of God because of my sin. And one of the flying angelic creatures there makes its way over to the altar, scoops up some coals and touches his lips, representing what? Cleansing him, forgiving him, making Isaiah righteous enough to stand in the presence of God. Now these, this imagery is taking these coals and hurling down, them down on earth. So like, I don't know if you have any charcoal barbecuers here in the room. It's like those charcoal briquettes when they just get scolding hot. And so like when you stir them around in the fire pit and they begin to crackle and pop and embers go up and it, right, it just agitates. Okay, imagine that times like seven trillion Right? As as the wrath of God is poured out, represented here on the earth, it's literally like the the popping and the cracking. It it feels like thunder. And the little embers burning and going, you know, flashing up. It's like lightning going off in this imagery. When this angel begins to cast down these lumps of coal right from the altar down on the earth. Now we're going to get to the blowing of first trumpet. If you're taking notes with us, I want to make this note, and it's so incredibly important. God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. Not one prayer of yours has been wasted breath. Hasn't been. Any prayer that you have prayed to God in faith, he has record of, such that You can actually, like, it's part of the aroma of heaven. Not one prayer has been wasted. Though we're prone to, right, to cry out to God and then forget, God does not forget. Now, he doesn't always respond with, okay, I'll do that, right? I mean, the sovereign God of the universe doesn't need me to tell him how to run things. So very seldom do I get a a pat on the back. Good job, Jason. I'm glad you thought of that. Okay, I'll do it. Like, most of the time, I get what the martyrs got. Be patient, right? Be patient. Wait a little longer. And sometimes being patient means waiting a few days, waiting a few weeks, waiting a few years. And in this case, right, waiting till Jesus comes back. And God says, I'm, I've heard your prayer. I've got it. It's logged. It's not wasted. I will respond. God hears and answers. He hears and responds to the prayers of his people. Now, verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the martyrs cry out, How long, God? He says, Be patient. Then in this imagery, we're told that the prayers are beginning to fill the room like incense. And God releases this eighth angel to begin to then what? To hurl down the coals of the altar onto the earth. And in this first trumpet blowing, we see it play out in hail and fire mixed with blood. Now in the first first four trumpets, as they blow, we're going to see an incredibly um, familiar symbolism or um, a familiarity to the plagues in Egypt, Now, not a perfect matchup, but this, in fact, is the seventh plague in Egypt. So all the way back here in Exodus, when God sends Moses to Pharaoh to let his people go out of slavery, there are ten plagues, this is one of them. You're going to see that play out with the next few trumpets. I just want to make a note here. So a third of the earth and a third of the trees and all of the grass is burned up. So this is not just wildfires out in California or out in the rural areas around Possum Kingdom Lake. The whole earth feels the impact of what's happening right here. And so far, it's not a direct impact on people. Now, people are being affected indirectly, but ultimately what's happening is God is unleashing his wrath, his punishment, first of all, on the earth. And a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all the grass are burned up. Second angel, verse 8, the second angel, he blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burned with fire and was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became like blood or became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, most likely what we're catching here is the imagery of volcanic eruption. Now, what's interesting in this area, they already had, they had two significant frames of reference for what we just read, if that's, in fact, the imagery that John's seeing. I'll, I'll give those to you. Uh, one was Mount uh, Vesuvius in 79 AD. So about 15 years before John writes this down, the people in this area had been greatly impacted by uh, this volcano. No matter of fact, uh, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, uh, Vesuvius it buried Pompeii and Herculaneum. Two major cities were leveled with this volcanic eruption. Another example would have been the Aegean Islands, um, the volcanic eruptions in the first century. Um, When the volcanoes of the Aegean Islands would erupt, it would fill the sky with red. And so you begin to feel that this might in fact be the imagery that John is seeing here as God begins to unfold this second trumpet. Of course, the ocean turning to blood, that would happen in the first plague in Egypt. The ocean turned to blood. Third angel blows his trumpet, verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the water became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So the direct impact was the water, but it indirectly affects the people on earth. Let's talk about this probably and most likely this is the imagery of a large meteorite hitting the earth Um, it was very common in the pagan worship of that time matter of fact the um, the Roman goddess Diana um, was depicted as a meteorite coming to earth we read about this in Acts where Paul's in uh, in the pagan temple in in Ephesus and there's this this description of Diana coming to earth like a like a meteor coming to earth and impacting uh, the earth now um, the, the second part of this is the wormwood. Wormwood was actually a root um, that you can find in this area today, and it would make water bitter. It doesn't make it poisonous, it makes it bitter. And so the inhabitants of this region would oftentimes use this um, as an act of symbolism of like mourning or bitterness, like when you had lost somebody you love. And so they would take the wormwood and stir it in the water and you would drink a sip of it. The bitterness would would hit your palate and remind you of the bitterness that you were feeling in your mourning or your lamenting. And so the impact of whatever this is, if it's a meteor or something like a meteor, hitting the earth, right? And probably because of the sulfur content, right, rendering uh, water poisonous, that it began to taste very bitter like wormwood and people began to die. Now, the, the fresh water supply turning bitter, of course, the first plague in Egypt. The fourth, the fourth angel in verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, the ninth plague in Egypt, literally for three days, they experienced darkness. And all throughout the prophecies, we see that indication of darkness shrouding the moon and the sun, right, grabbing the attention of the inhabitants of earth. Something is going on here. And so the fourth trumpet brings about darkness over the earth. Now, those four trumpets blow, and, it, and it's very uh, similar to what we read about in Exodus with the plagues. But there's going to be a major shift now with the next three. So if we look at this together, in verse 13, I want you to to follow me here. Four trumpets have blown. Then I looked and I heard an eagle cry with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. So let me just help us out here. The word woe represents a significant warning. Jesus actually issues woes in the gospel. Woes are meant to be a warning given to awaken people who are in a a sinful stupor of rebellion to awaken them to repentance. That's what woes are for. Okay, it's like uh, like that moment when the alarm clock goes off and like it just catches you off guard and it's just piercing and it's, right? And it's meant to awaken you. That's what woes are. So these last three trumpets going off are gonna literally be three woes from God. Meant to do what? To awaken a rebellious people from their sinful stupor to turn in repentance back to God. And so the eagle cries, woe, woe, woe. And now what we're going to see these next trumpets are going to directly relate to the inhabitants of earth. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1, we get the fifth angel. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, that almost sounds like the meteor imagery, doesn't it? But the difference is now this star falling from heaven is going to be given like a personification. He's going to do things and going to show up again in Revelation 20. So we're looking at either like a demonic being or an angelic being getting involved in what's happening here. I'll give you some some examples here. Um, So in Luke 10, talking about Satan, we read this. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We call Satan the fallen angel. So one thought or perspective is that what we just read about is actually Satan himself. Another interpretation would be that that the one who has fallen from heaven to earth is literally an, an angel servant of God who's about to do something for God. And I think this is probably more likely what we're looking at here, especially when we look at what takes place in Revelation 20. So let's read this together. Still, still in, in Revelation 9 before we go to 20. So this angel was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Verse 2 of chapter 9. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft. So whatever this being is, he unlocks the lid, the door, to the bottomless pit, and as soon as he breaks the seal... Like smoke begins to plume out. Like smoke coming from what? A furnace. What's interesting is when we get to Revelation 20, and we'll read a few verses in Revelation 20, we look at verse 1 of 20, it says this, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, does that sound familiar? Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he, verse 2, seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So it really sounds very similar, similar to that, what's happening here in Revelation chapter 9. That this is, in fact, an angel of the Lord, a servant of God, who has been given the keys. Now, we read in chapter 1, who holds the keys to death in Hades? Jesus does. The opening scene of Revelation, Jesus has the keys. So, evidently, what we have here is Jesus giving the keys to to an angel servant to unlock the bottomless pit. It's consistent with what we read even in Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to the disciples He's talking about building his church, and he essentially gives them the keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he essentially gives them the gospel as the keys to heaven. And then they go from there and share the gospel all over the earth, unlocking heaven for those who would believe. Now Jesus is giving the keys, right? giving permission to the angel to unlock the bottomless pit. Now, here's the point I think that I want to make. Whichever way you go here, it doesn't matter. Jesus is in sovereign control over what's taking place here. So there are some who would say, again, this is, this is a demon. There were some who say this is an angel of the Lord. But ultimately, who is sovereign over the keys? Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is sovereign in sovereign control over all things, both good and evil. Jesus is in sovereign control over all things, both good and evil. You're going to see this all throughout Revelation. You're going to see a lot of un- unfolding of evil and destruction, but never outside the boundaries that Jesus has set. Whether it's a time frame or, um, or a geographical, or geographical frame, anytime time Satan has been released, it's, it's got restraint. It's like what we see with Job, where God says to Satan, you can, you, can, you can have your way, but here are limits and boundaries to how far you can go with my servant Job. And so we see God sitting in sovereign control over both good and evil. Now, this is true in, in your life as well. Right? You walk with the Lord for any number of years, you're going to be able to look back at moments that felt very dark, very desperate, very evil, with a hindsight perspective to see good. I mean, you don't have to walk with the Lord very long at all to have those experiences. You walk through an experience in life that is a trial and suffering. It feels like you're walking into a dark room. Many times you feel all alone, and then only to what? To walk through that season in life and look back and realize that Jesus was there with you in the dark room, in the valley, of the shadow of death, ushering you through it. And what felt like evil or darkness or pain or suffering, somehow he has turned it out for your good, right? And you would never say, oh, I want to go through that again. But in each of our lives, our testimony over, after testimony of what? Jesus is sovereign control of both good and evil. The only way he can do that is to be sovereign over evil. That doesn't make him the author of it. That makes him the Lord over it. And over and over again, right, Satan is being Released with limits. You can only go this far. And so here we see what appears to be Jesus giving sovereign authority for this angel to open the pit. Now we're going to get this imagery of locusts, verse 3. And from the smoke came locusts on earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions on earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. The focus is changing, isn't it? But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not kill them. Five months was the life cycle of a locust, by the way. It's also the season of um, drought and famine every year in this region. From April to August, they go through severe drought. So either one of those could be implied here. But the point is what? There's a limit. There's a time frame. They were allowed to torment for five months but not kill them. Their torments was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. I can't imagine any more vivid imagery of suffering than what we just read right there. Suffering to the point where you're looking for death and you can't find it. Being unleashed on the earth. Now, we're getting this imagery of locusts here. Let's, let's finish out this description. So in the appearance of, the, this is verse 7, in, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like Crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like a woman's hair, their teeth like lions' teeth. They had the breastplate like a breastplate of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings. <clears throat> they have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months in their tails. I want to stop there. There's a couple different ways that commentators will read what we just read. One would be to say that what's being described here are these locust-like beings, and uh, and the the imagery is really depicting demonic forces here on earth, and so this is how John's seeing it. Another way would be to say what John is seeing is something he's never seen before, and what he's actually seeing is modern-day instruments of warfare, things like helicopters and aircraft carriers and rocket, you know, jets and missiles and things. And so he's trying to describe things that he's never seen before, but he's describing describing them with imagery that that he has seen, like locusts and lions and horses. And and so either way you either way you go here, what we're seeing is all out warfare being unleashed on the earth. And so in this region in particular, they've experienced almost every century that is recorded has experienced some in some area um, a a plague of locusts. Um, there was one in the uh, the nineteenth uh, the century that was described as being four miles long. That's how long the cloud of locusts was. In nineteen eighty eight, so from like seventy nine to or nineteen eighty seven to nineteen eighty nine, about three years worth of locust plagues. In nineteen eighty eight alone, uh, we sent over three hundred million gallons of pesticide to Africa because of a locust plague over $250 million worth of aid, right, for just a locust plague. So these people are very familiar with the destruction that locusts can bring about. However, I think locust is just the imagery depicting something much worse. So the bottomless pit opens and smoke comes out, and so what we're seeing is this cloud of locusts or destroyers are coming out onto the earth, and, and John's describing them as he sees them, whether he's seeing instruments of warfare from the future, or he's seeing these creatures, and it's just what they look like. Uh, We don't know, but the point is, right, demonic forces being released here on earth. Here's how we know it. Look at verse 11. They, whoever they are, have uh, as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which also means destroyer, the first woe has passed and behold, two are still to come. So the main point here that we're being, that's being described to us is that ultimately demonic force has been unleashed here on earth. Warfare is taking place. Now, I don't know if you catch on to what's happening then. Did you notice that those who were affected by this were those who did not have the seal on their foreheads. Did you maybe catch that? Now, this is the Old Testament imagery that your spiritual identity would be reflected on the outside. And in the Old Testament, they would, they would, they would put, hang things from their foreheads or bind them around their necks or set them on their doorposts, representing what? Their spiritual identity. And so here, this sealed is being represented, sealed on their foreheads. It's what we learn about in Ephesians 1, that everybody who has heard the gospel and believed it has been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So the people who are being affected here are not Christians, right? The people who are being affected here are those who have rebelled against God and who are following Satan. You feel the irony in that? Satan has just been released on earth, and he's attacking his followers. The destroyer has turned on those whom have followed him." Now think about this, if you're taking notes. Satan always promises life and always delivers death. Always. Satan always promises, right, joy, life, happiness, peace, purpose in things that in the end deliver only death, right? It's the same promise that sin makes, right? Come do this and you'll be happy. Come do this, you'll be satisfied. Come do this, you'll have joy. Come do this, come take this. Come, right, work for this, whatever it is. And so what sin does to us, it brings before us false idols, things that we would believe would bring us pleasure and purpose and, and joy and life. And in the end, they do what? They deliver death. And this has just happened in a cosmic way to the people here on earth. Those who have not, their lives have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit now are reaping, right, Satan himself, the destroyer, turning on them. And though he promised them life, he's delivering death. And he does that to you on a daily basis. You're aware of that? Satan lies to you every day, attempting to put idols in your hands, right? Attempting to put things in your mind and on your heart for you to pursue. And he promises you what? This will make you happy. If you'll just lose this much weight, right? If you'll just get this job, if you'll just get this house or buy this car and what? In the end, the new car smell wears off and we're just as unhappy. Maybe more so now because we've got this $500 car payment every month. The promise was it's going to make me happy. It's going to make me feel good about myself. Now I feel naive and dumb and taken advantage of and I feel just as hopeless as I did before I bought it. Every day, Satan is on the prowl, tempting you to buy into that lie, promising you life and delivering death. And what's happening here is it's being unveiled. God is saying, Satan, no more. He unveils it. And so we can see Satan turn on those who follow him. Now, with the locust imagery, we get suffering. With the sixth trumpet now, we get death. Death. If you go back to the five seals, we saw the same thing. It started with suffering, and it ended with death. Verse 13 of Revelation 9. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. That would be over 2 billion people if it happens today. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. If my math works, I think that's 200 million 200 million warriors coming against mankind. Verse 17, And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, listen to this, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So whatever the imagery is depicting, we're seeing death unleashed, and two major points are being made here. Two major points are being made. First of all, even though they're beginning to realize the thing I hoped in, right, is now delivering death, they didn't let go of their idols. Right? And so the point of it all so we're at the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet, the second woe is what? God awakening his enemies to repent. And in the end, what? They don't repent. Now now follow me here. So those who have trusted in demonic things have tried to find their pleasure, joy, satisfaction, security, purpose in things here on earth. Things like wood and gold and right, these false idols that don't have mouths or ears or feet to walk. and right, There's a lot of irony in that. Right? When those idols turn on them, they don't let go of them. They hang on all the, all the more. And ultimately what God is doing is what? He's, 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 he's sending out an alarm to awaken us To what? To repentance. We're we're six trumpets into this thing. And God is still looking for his enemies to do what? To repent. Now now here's here's where we get to talk about his justice and his mercy merged together. So think about it like this. On one hand, when we see God unleash his punishment or his wrath, we have a hard time reconciling that with our Santa Claus version of God right? The happy, jolly God who runs around with a bag full of gifts just dumping out good stuff on us that we don't deserve, right? With the naughty and nice list. So we have a hard time reconciling that, right? So how can God be this God of wrath and be merciful and loving and good? Let me, let me describe it for you this way, though. How about put yourself in the shoes of a family who's waking up this morning with a, with a family member on life support or just passed away from the attack in Paris, Perspective changes, doesn't it? How long, oh God, are you going to be patient with those here on earth who bring about destruction? You feel the tension in that? On one hand, we we have a hard time thinking that God could both be merciful, loving, and kind, and also be a God of justice and wrath. And on the other hand, we can't wait for that God to show up and reckon, right, what has been made wrong. And so, right, we wrestle with those tensions here. And what we see is God, as he's unfolding this final unveiling of the coming of his son, we're we're seven seals, six trumpets in, and God is still looking for what? Repentance. Remember the martyrs praying to God? In chapter 5, God, how long before you avenge? And what does God say? Be patient and wait a little longer. Can I just tell you, I'm so glad that God is patient. I'm so glad that he didn't just call the whole thing off in 1803 right? He's still enduring Romans 9 with great patience, but there is coming a day where God will take the invitation of his mercy off the table. So on one hand, his mercy lasts for forever, right? His mercy endures forever, but the invitation to receive his mercy will one day be taken off the table. And on one hand, we say, oh God, give us more time, right? Be patient a little bit longer. And then on the other hand, oh God, when are you going to vindicate the suffering of your servants? Please come soon. Please come soon. As we saw before, Satan always promises life and always delivers death. Now we see that God's mercy, though his mercy will never end, his invitation to receive his mercy will one day come to an end. His mercy will never end. So when I see you in heaven and you see me, and we're both baffled that either one of us gets to be there, right, we're going to be reminded in that moment of what? God's mercy, because I'm going to see the righteousness of Christ on you, and I know you well enough to go, no, that's not yours, right? Nobody's going to be running around heaven with their report card out going, look at my grades, straight A's, perfect attendance, look at my citizenship, model citizen, look at my bumper sticker for my car, like, I mean, none of that, The only thing that qualifies you and I to stand in the presence of God in that moment is the righteousness of Christ. And when I see you clothed and robed with with the robe of Jesus, I'm going to go, gosh, he's merciful. And when you see me, you're going to think the same thing. God's mercy endures forever. It never ends. However, his invitation to receive it will one day be off the table. I can't tell you when that day is. The angels in heaven can't tell you when that day is, but we just read this morning. They're all postured and ready to go. And on one hand, they're thinking this can't come soon enough, right? With every, every terrorist attack, with every natural disaster that brings about destruction here on earth, with every stench of death here on earth, the angels are postured, they're ready to go. The martyrs are crying out, God, come soon. And God is waiting patiently until the right moment where he tells the angels, okay, go. Angel number one, go. Angel number two, go. Angel number three, go. Angel number four, go. Angel number five, go. Angel number six, go. And we just read that with angel number six, God is still giving time and extending patience and grace, looking for his enemies to what? To repent. He's a gracious God. He's a gracious God. The seventh trumpet, the final woe, is in verse 14 of Revelation 11. The second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we just sang that earlier, didn't we? We look to Yahweh, Yahweh. Why do we look to him? Because he shall reign forever. The kingdom of man will come to an end. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and worshiped God. It's the same image we saw back in Revelation 4. And look at what they are saying. We give thanks to you, the Lord God Almighty. And don't miss this, who is and who was. Something's missing. Did you catch it? Every time this phrase has been expressed in the Bible, it is what? Who was and is and, right, is to come. There's no longer anymore is to come. Why? Because he has come. His reign is finally on earth. He's no longer the God who is and was and is to come. He's now the God who was and is. What a glorious moment. He was and is For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. We saw that with the seals, didn't we? Raising up to conquer, civil war breaking out. The nations have raged, but your wrath came. And the time of the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying who? The destroyers of the earth. With the sixth trumpet, the destroyers are released. With the seventh trumpet, what has happened? Now the destroyers have been destroyed. Verse 19 And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. The kingdom and dominion of man, which since the fall has been dominated by sin. And groaning to be released from bondage has come to an end. And the God who is and was has now come and brought about his kingdom on earth. God always delivers what he promises. God always delivers what he promises. Always. There'll be no room for you and I to get mad at God and say, I wish you'd have told us this was gonna happen. Yeah? There's no no, no room to go to God and go, man, that's not fair. Don't try that one with God, right? Because he's going to look to his son Jesus dying on the cross for you and go, you're right, it's not fair. I gave you more than fair. You want me to take that back? No. He's been more than fair, more than patient, more than kind. He always delivers what he says he will deliver. He always delivers what he says he will deliver. He keeps his promises. And right now, guys, listen, the invitation is on the table. The invitation is on the table. God is promising you right now that if you will trust in the work that his son Jesus did on the cross by faith and faith alone, you will be saved. You will will receive endless mercy, grace abounding that never ends. You will know the presence of God in a very intimate and real way. You will experience a love that you've never experienced here on earth. You will experience a purpose that you've never experienced here on earth. All the promises that that are wrapped up in the lies of Satan are really the promises of God, hijacked. God's making you those promises. You want joy? Come to me. Purpose, security, identity. All of those are on the table available for you right now by faith in Jesus. Period. So I want you to know that right now. The invitation is on the table. God is still being a patient, merciful God. He's still saying to the martyrs, not yet, guys, not yet. There's, there's still a few more to come in. What I wanna do now is I wanna, I wanna pray for us and I wanna give you a chance to respond uh, to God's word this morning. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me right now as our worship team comes forward. Um, I wanna remind you that we have prayer partners in our, in our room right now who are at the back They would love nothing more than just to hear from you and to pray with you. They'll be back here with lanyards on. If you'd like to just come and spend some time kneeling at the front, just like the 24 elders did, just kneeling in the presence of God and praying, you can can do that. If you just want to stay seated, spend some time just really meditating on what you've heard from the Word of God this morning, you can do that as well. The rest of us, we're going to stand and sing. Before we do that, let's pray together and prepare our hearts to respond. Um, Father, we just uh, wanna come before your holy presence right now and acknowledge what an honor it is for us to stand before your throne, for us to speak to you. And in what we read today, we're reminded that you are, you're the Lord and the King of this universe. Nothing, nothing that we experience, no, no force of evil, no 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 struggle, no suffering. Nothing is outside of your sovereign control. You're a God who makes the heavens and earth shake when you speak. And yet, you come to us as a loving Father. And you invite us into this daily relationship with you. Where you treat us like children adopted into a family with love and purpose. and, And God, you wrap your arms around us and you call us your own. You're both the king of the universe and the heavenly father. Right now, God, I pray you would work, work on us, God. And each person in this room, would you call us to respond? And any person here who has not accepted the invitation to be saved, that today would be the day, by faith, to trust and believe in the work that Jesus has done on the cross. And that that work is enough for an eternal life of salvation. God, would you do that today in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' powerful name.